It's John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glories. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, as Nathan said, uh, I'm Andrew, and it is a real joy to be here. So uh, Nathan asked me if I could come, and I wasn't sure that I could, but I was going to make a way, because I honestly love being here. So thank you for having me. Um, What's great about it for me is your expectations of me are so much lower. Uh, And so I feel great about it. Uh, Sure, I'll do it. So if you are paying attention um, to that scripture reading, you know that what my job is today is to tell you about the time Jesus went to a party and helped a bunch of people keep the alcohol rolling at that party. <laughs> it's probably not something you expected to hear on a Sunday morning in, uh, in your future, and I think that that's uh, kind of a big picture thing. I mean, most of us, when we picture Jesus, we probably imagine a few different things. If I just say the name Jesus, depending on your background, you may think of a stoic and sorrowful Jesus. You may think of a, a serious Jesus. You may even think of an angry, judgmental Jesus, again, depending on your background. But honestly, how many of us picture a party animal when I say the name Jesus? How many of us close our eyes and picture Jesus smiling and laughing and dancing and smirking at a joke and making sure everybody's drink has been refreshed? It almost sounds irreverent, doesn't it, to say that out loud if it weren't exactly what we read in this story this morning. These last few weeks, we've been mostly in John's gospel since the new year, walking through this story of Jesus. And here in chapter 2, John gives us a picture of a Jesus we probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about. Jesus, the life of the party. However, this, this isn't just a John thing. This is a consistent picture of Jesus we get across the Gospels. Matthew, in fact, tells us that one of the things the Pharisees hated the most about Jesus and what they accused him of was being a glutton and a drunkard. There was something about Jesus that really religious people, like the Pharisees, these were religious leaders at the time of Jesus, there was something about him that really religious people did not understand, something about the kingdom he brought that made them uncomfortable, something about the kind of people he associated with 
that made them misunderstand him. There's something about his celebration that did not put them in a very celebratory mood. But that something, okay, that something is critical for us to understand if we want to know who Jesus really is and the kind of kingdom that he wants to offer to us. We, ha- we have to go to this party with Jesus and see what he does. So if you have your Bible, I, I want you to uh, pull it out, turn to John chapter 2, if you haven't already done that, and let's dive in. So uh, in, our, in the previous text, in, in the end of John chapter 1, uh, Jesus picks up a few of his early uh, disciples. So uh, if you were to go back and read that story, you would see that we, we meet Peter there, Andrew, Nathaniel, Philip, uh, and an unnamed disciple that uh, I'm pretty sure is John himself. Part of John's charm is that he never names himself in his gospel, and I think that's the first time you see that. So these guys, they hitch their wagons to Jesus, and they start to follow him for the next three years. And together, this group, this, this little right, ragtag group, gets an invitation. That's verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So, uh, as I said, this previous story where Jesus picks up some of his early disciples, this is all north in ancient Israel, in the region called Galilee, okay? Galilee is the backwater, I hate to say it, but Hickville part of Israel. Uh, If you were from Judah, you could hear the accent of Galilee, and you thought, okay, I know where you're from. All of these early disciples are from there, and Cana is a small town in Galilee. That's where this wedding is. But it seems that Jesus and his followers were invited to this wedding, uh, not necessarily because of Jesus, but because of Jesus' mother. John makes that clear right away. John says she was there, and then Jesus and his disciples were invited. So we don't know this for sure, but it would make sense that this wedding was being put on by a family friend of Mary. And Mary uh, was available to come to help. Maybe she's the party planner. She, she seems to have some kind of formal role of leadership at this wedding. Who knows? We don't really know. But everybody's invited, and it's a really big deal. Okay, weddings in ancient Israel were a very big deal. Uh, perhaps if you grew up in a small town, you know this, but when there's a wedding in a small town, it's a really big deal. Uh, and this was true for the small villages in Israel, too. Remember that there wasn't a lot of time or money to have fun in the ancient world. You're really busy just trying to survive. So when somebody got married, this would be the talk of the town for weeks, for months ahead of time. This was a big deal. And the hosts of the wedding, if if you were throwing this party, there's a lot at stake for you. If you've ever put on a wedding, you know how stressful that can be. Everyone you know and care about is there, your family and your friends, and maybe even coworkers, maybe employers, clients, customers. And they all hopefully bring really expensive gifts. That's why you invited them, right? But you've got to make it worth their while with enough food and drink and celebration. You add to that the honor-shame dynamics of a Middle Eastern culture. And you can understand, maybe a little bit, why everybody's blood pressure goes up with the next verse. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So somebody skimped on the wine order or they were over-serving, I have no idea. And Mary, who again seems to have some formal role here, she goes to her son Jesus and she tells him, 
We don't really know what Mary expects Jesus to do here, but, but, but it's got to be something unusual. It's not like Jesus can run to the supermarket and get two buck chuck at this point. There's nothing to do but basically hand out water bottles and apologize, short of a miracle, which seems to be where Jesus' mind goes when his mother comes to him. That's why he says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, that sounds way colder in English than it's meant to. Uh, We don't say woman anymore as a title. But at this time, uh, that would be the equivalent of saying like ma'am. It's a term of respect. It is a little distancing between Jesus and his mother. It's not something you would say to your mom at this time. Um, or, or now, right? We wouldn't say that unless you're from the South, then you might call your mother ma'am. But like, we don't usually say that either. So it seems that Jesus in this moment is reminding Mary that whatever she expects him to do, it is not up to her. And he says, my hour has not yet come. Now hold that thought. So Jesus, he gently but firmly tells his mom, like, hey, I don't want to be involved right now, but she, she involves him anyway, like a typical mom. And she doesn't respond to Jesus. She looks at the servants nearby, and she says, do whatever he tells you. And then she walks away. <laughs> she says, Jesus, this is your problem now. Okay? It's Jesus, it's you or nothing. And she walks away. Now, here things get really interesting. So Jesus walks everybody over to some huge jars. That's verse 6. These are probably at the entrance to the venue. Six stone jars meant to hold water for purification is what John tells us. So it seems that before you would enter a party like this, you would wash your hands uh, ceremonially. Uh, They might have even used this water to wash the utensils they were going to use to serve the food uh, at the wedding. That's the idea. Jesus finds these jars and he tells the servants to fill them up to the brim all the way up. Now, if my math is correct, which I will be honest, is not a strength. However, if it's correct, we're, we're looking at about 100 to 150 gallons of water in these jars. So if you can imagine like a 30-gallon trash can, those big plastic trash cans, we're looking at three or four of those full of water. Jesus says, fill them up. That's verse 8. And then Jesus tells them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. Now, this guy, the master of the feast, we would probably call him a master of ceremonies, probably the host of this venue. Part of his role on this wedding day would be to taste everything before it was served to the guests, to make sure it was up to snuff. That's part of his role. It's his call either way before anything hits the table. Now, we don't know exactly the mechanics of what happens here, but by the time this cup of water gets to this man's lips... It has become wine. Now, there's a rumor floating around out there that's in some Christian circles that what Jesus does here is make really good grape juice, (laughs) which I understand. I understand that because our relationship to alcohol is complicated. It seriously is. And my hunch is probably everybody in this room or watching online has a story around alcohol that is not good. Okay, whether that's our, our, our own families, marriages, whole communities can be devastated by alcohol and things like it. So don't get me wrong, I understand the temptation to say that Jesus would have nothing to do with something so potentially dangerous, but that would be mistaken. And I, big picture, this is important. 
Remember with me that all pleasure, food, drink, sex, rest, can be abused, but it is all God's idea. It reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis was a a British author uh, in the World War II era and, and beyond. And he wrote this amazing collection of fictional letters. It's called the Screwtape Letters. If you're not familiar, uh, it is all right, right, fictional letters of a senior demon coaching and mentoring a junior demon on the art and craft of tempting humans uh, against the work of the enemy, which from the, from the demon standpoint is God. So whenever you read the enemy in this book, it, it's referring to God. At one point, the senior demon warns this about, he says this about pleasure. He says, never forget that when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. It is his invention and not ours. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Pleasure can be dangerous, but not because it's ungodly. There's a difference. Jesus makes real wine here, and I'll explain why that's important actually in just a minute. But it is also the only way to explain the reaction of the master of ceremonies, right? So he calls aloud for everybody to hear over to the groom and his family, because that's who would have paid for this. And he says, everybody serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the bad stuff, because no one will notice anymore, but you have kept the good wine until now. Good grape juice is not good wine. Whatever Jesus made, this expert can tell, is the real thing. But notice with me, there's no fanfare for Jesus in this story. Only the servants and Mary and maybe a few disciples understand at this moment what actually happened. Which is why John points out in verse 11 that the disciples' response was greater faith in Jesus. They believed in him. John tells us, though, however small the circle, however unnoticed this miracle, the mo- this moment was of extreme importance to Jesus. Uh, this was the, John says this was the first sign of Jesus' ministry. Now, John's going to show us seven such signs. That's an important word to follow as you read John. These signs are more than just magic tricks. Signs are actually even more than what we would typically mean by the word miracle in English. These signs are guides. They're hints, they're clues about the kind of king Jesus is in Israel and the kind of kingdom he means to bring into the world. So notice with me the first thing Jesus does to show what he's all about, to say why the word became flesh and dwelt among us, like John said in chapter 1, is to help out a little family affair and to save them from embarrassment and to keep the party rolling. That's the first sign. Now John, as he always does, invites us to put ourselves into this story. First, perhaps, as the disciples, in amazement of what Jesus has just done. But don't forget also, as the family on the verge of social catastrophe, the wine ran out. And to ask ourselves, what would we do? What will we do when the wine runs out? It is so easy when the getting is good to never ask this question. 
to never wonder what happens when the market turns or the layoffs come or the restructure hits or the work dries up. What happens when marriage isn't easy anymore, when raising kids gets really hard, when the spouse of my dreams never shows up? What happens when your body breaks down and it can no longer keep up with the expectations you have for yourself and your happiness and your life? How easy it is to forget when the wine is flowing that it cannot flow forever. It won't. The wine always runs out. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, Andrew, you're reading too much into this. I'm not. Yes, Jesus just happens to be at a party, and due to poor planning and poor, or poor execution or both, the wine runs out. But remember, this is a sign from Jesus about him, yes, but also about the world he's come to fix. It's both. The wine runs out for everybody. And you would think, here's what's most surprising to me about this story. You would think, if you have studied world religions at all, you would think that what Jesus would do when the wine runs out at this party is get up on a table and preach a sermon, right? He would get up and he would condemn everyone for seeking pleasure or for not paying attention to the problem or for not planning well, right? He would turn this into some kind of spiritual lesson or whatever. That's what we would expect. The last thing we would guess is that Jesus would quietly, quietly go over and turn the spigot back on, which is exactly what he does. What will we do when, the, when, our, when our, the, our wine runs out? John is saying, this is a moment to trust Jesus like the disciples do for two reasons, okay, that I want us to look at. Two reasons to trust him when the wine runs out. The first is that Jesus' rescue plan never fails. Let me, let me show you what I mean. When our wine runs out, as it were, and we're, we're tempted as human beings to scramble, to resort to all kinds of self-preservation that never, ever works. That's why when you look at the most worldly, successful, famous people, nine times out of ten, what they want to tell the rest of us is, man, even for them, eventually the wine runs out. And they can be the most miserable of people because they've tried every human attempt to keep the party rolling. And it doesn't work. But Jesus' rescue plan never fails. There's a reason, think with me, there's a reason Jesus doesn't just snap his fingers and fix the problem. Presumably, Jesus could have just said to everyone's, right? He could have just looked at everyone's wine cup and said, fill it up. Boom, right there, done. Why doesn't he do that? Instead, he goes to find these jars and he says, fill them up to the brim. Give them everything you've got. Now, remember with me, these jars are more than ancient hand sanitizer. That's actually not what they're for. They represent the entire Mosaic system, the Old Testament system of salvation and forgiveness and getting close to God, which is the author to the letter of Hebrews points out, if you've not read that, is grace. Okay, the Old Testament, the temple, the sacrifice, ceremonial cleansing, those are all a gift of grace from God to approach him, but they were never ever effective for very long. You had to keep washing. This is the whole point of the letter of Hebrews. You had to keep washing, keep sacrificing, keep atoning over and over and over again. 
They were good, but they were never good enough. In fact, what they, they were never meant to rescue us at all. Instead, they pointed to a person and a time and a moment beyond themselves. Jesus says, right here, right now, fill those jars because that moment has come. Jesus is showing us when, the hour, when his hour does come, as he said to his mother, when we see him lifted up on a cross, when we see him bursting forth from an empty tomb, then we will see and understand that the Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world forever. His rescue plan will not fail. When every other plan does, his will not. But there's actually more than that to this story. What Jesus hints at here and what what he'll offer outright elsewhere is more than a rescue from our sins and our mistakes. It is that. But it's actually to bring us to the greatest party the world has ever known. Because Jesus' wine never runs out. I know this is going to sound really weird, okay? But just bear with me. So Jesus' response to the partygoers, to the problem, when the wine runs out, was not to chastise them for wanting wine in the first place. It was to show them as good as their wine was. His was better. It wasn't that they wanted too little or that they wanted too much. Jesus says, you didn't want enough. Jesus isn't, by the way, just making this up on the spot. Again, with all the caveats about potential danger of alcohol and anything that we can be addicted to. The Bible consistently describes the new creation, this moment where Jesus reigns supreme and makes everything right and reigns on the throne. The Bible consistently describes that moment as one giant party. And not just any party, a wedding party. And not just any wedding party, the wedding of the bride, the people of God, and the Lamb, Jesus himself where he will provide to the brim all the happiness and joy we could ever imagine and more. In fact, Amos the prophet in the Old Testament, when he saw that day, he put it this way, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. There's a reason Jesus always loved a good party. He was known for it. It's not just because parties are fun. It's because they reminded him of the reason he came in the first place. This little wedding in first century Cana with a bunch of poor planners was the moment Jesus decided to remind the world that his hope and his joy and his purpose was to keep the party going that he has been planning from before the foundation of the world. To offer us a joy that cannot be taken away, to invite you to a celebration that never gets old, to offer you wine that will never run out to remind us that Jesus is not and has never been the obstacle to the life you've always wanted. He's the doorway to it. So how do we walk through that door? How do we accept this invitation? 
I think we get at least one image of how to do that here in this story. I think Mary gives us our best advice. Do whatever he tells you. Remember, this is what Mary says to the servants after her conversation with Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. I love it. I think it's probably one of the most clear, simple, and profound pictures of faith in the New Testament that you'll find. Mary turns to Jesus in crisis. Notice, it is not a profound crisis. In fact, in John, we will see way, the stakes go way higher. There will be another Mary with a sister Martha and a brother Lazarus, and he's dying, and they will beg Jesus to come and save him. We're going to get to that later this year as we continue in John. But compared to that, running out of wine is no big deal, but she turns to Jesus anyway, and she asks for his help. And she leaves it completely up to him. I imagine her turning away from Jesus and toward these servants and saying, do you see this man here? I have no idea what he's going to do. No idea. But whatever he says is the best thing for everybody involved. So do whatever he tells you to do. And then she walks away. Do what he tells you to do. Not because it stops the fun, but because it leads to real joy. And notice, doing what Jesus tells us to do, just simple obedience to him, is not some esoteric, mystical thing. He is here and available for real, everyday kind of problems. Jesus is not an insurance plan for your soul. The picture John paints here is that he is a master of ceremonies who cares about every last detail of your life and has what's best for you in mind, and he knows how to get it for you. So let me, I wanted us to start really simply here. Maybe you've never tried this before. This week, okay, read through the Sermon on the Mount. It's a perfect distillation, I think, of Jesus' teaching of the good party life. Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. It's not very long. You can read it in a few minutes. Find a command there from Jesus about the good life and do what he says. Pray for an enemy. Give generously and anonymously. Pray the Lord's Prayer daily. Pick something small and do what he says. Again, not to earn something from him, but to practice for the party, the good life to come. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking. You're thinking, Andrew, but obeying Jesus doesn't always feel like a party. That's true. You're right. But that makes the anticipation all the sweeter. In so many ways, what discipleship to Jesus, this side of heaven is, is simply building anticipation for the life to come. That's what it is, preparing for that. Which is why we celebrate communion together. That's practice too. Now don't worry, we're not going to use real wine today if you were concerned about that. Maybe some of you are disappointed, I understand that too. But I do want to point out that we don't need alcohol to celebrate what Jesus is doing or what he's offering. And there's good reason at Christ's community that we don't, some churches do this, and that's fine, but we don't offer real alcohol for this because we want to serve anybody and everybody who comes through these doors. And we all, right, have our story. But as strange as this sounds, I actually, this is what I want you guys to pay attention to. The communion table is not just a sobering place of self-reflection. It is that. But more fundamentally, more importantly than that, actually, 
It is an appetizer. It's a, it's a foretaste. It's a teaser for the real thing, for the party, the feast to come. And it is a tangible reminder that, yes, Jesus' body had to break and his blood had to spill to deal with our sin. But more than that, it is a picture of why Jesus went through all the trouble in the first place, to keep a party going, to keep a celebration moving that was before all things, is hidden in all things, and will one day redeem all things. And he wants everyone, he wants everyone here to join him so badly that he gave up everything even to the point of death on a cross, to lift us up with him. That's what this sign means. And that's what the communion table is. And so if you're ready to join in, if you've believed in Jesus, as the disciples do here, I'm going to pray in just a minute. We're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together. And when you're ready, please come and celebrate with Jesus. There are two tables here in the back. Whenever you're ready, you can come after we pray and do the Apostles' Creed. If you have not believed in him, we're so glad that you're here. That takes real guts. If you're still considering him, please know you honor us and you honor our tradition by not participating with us in this. These are for followers of Jesus. Instead, what I want you to do is take this moment to pray and to ask yourself what's holding you back. Or to consider where you sense in your life the wine is quickly running out. And maybe ask Jesus to reveal himself to you in that place this week.